I think the world expects young people to be like Hannah Montana kids. And that's that's really sad because I don't want to live in that world. Party <laughs> in the USA, man. Dodge this. I am the father. I'm here on a mission of mercy. There's only one God, man, and I'm pretty sure he doesn't dress like that. Let's put a smile on that face. I want the truth! You can't handle the truth! Open the pod bay doors, huh? I'm sorry, Dave. I'm afraid I can't do that. Welcome to the real world. Hello, everyone. Welcome to episode 104 of the Movie Bite podcast. We're going to talk about some movies, movie reviews, movie news, trailers, and more. We're recording on Tuesday, September the 2nd, 2014. I am TJ, your host, and joining me today, he is the man with all the memories. I think he can even see colors the rest of us cannot. It is Joe Darnell. Hi, TJ. How are you doing, sir? I'm doing fine. How are you? I'm doing great. It feels so awesome to be the giver and stuff, but don't believe me, I'm lying to you. Or uh, am I? You're allowed to lie. With the rest of us, we have to be polite. We're not allowed to lie and we have our place in this in this world and we don't get to uh, you know, we don't get to say I get to be rude and stuff, so I get to cut you off any time I feel like. Just like that. I I get it. I totally get it. Uh, so how's your uh, how's your week getting started off? How was how was your Labor Day? Oh, it was really good. I uh did something crazy. I picked up my younger siblings and I brought them over to my place and we watched the Truman Show for the first time for them all the way through. And then after that, we got to talking and we talked and we talked and we talked. And I think after I got them home and I checked the time before I hit the sack, it was 5.15 in the morning. Whoa! Yeah, I I was really stunned. <laughs> I I knew it was late. I didn't think it was that late. When, when was this? It was yesterday, and you got home at five fifteen this morning. Yes, yes. Have you had enough caffeine? Are you going to be a little bit loopy? Are you going to be able to do the podcast? Yes, yes, yes. Uh, loopy, loopy, loopy. Yes. I'm sorry. What was that? I can't hear you. Are you mm. even speaking? I'm alive and well. Thank you, sir. Good evening. Uh, Ready to okay. get started? I I think so. Yeah, I came rushing home to do this podcast because I was uh, running a little bit late, but uh, I'm here and uh, nobody will know the difference because it'll post at the same time tomorrow and you and I are the only ones that will know the difference. So I think we're good to go. Hmm. Uh, Do you want to talk about this uh, hilarious headline? (laughs) I mean, this hilarious news? Yes, sir. Please, may I? May I have the honors, TJ? You may. Please go ahead. Machete kills writer to pen michael bay produced cosmic motors you kind of flubbed that one up i know i did (laughs) oh ouch okay machete kills writer to pen michael bay produced cosmic motors it's such a tongue twister it's such an ugly let that sink in for a minute the writer of machete kills is now going to write a michael bay produced film called cosmic motors just let that sink in for a minute this is going to be um stupid mixed with crazy and I think the math for that is, uh, what, what is the math for garbage times extra stupid? I'm not even sure how that works. <laughs> well, to be honest with you, um, um, yeah, no, there, there's no way this is going to be good. But wh- what the heck <laughs> you is... You were trying ca- to find something redeeming about it, and you couldn't, could you? <laughs> no. Uh, this comes from comingsoon.net. 
just you know just go to the website and look at the top it it really it really is sensational and uh my guess is is that this is going to be um about product placement for cars uh but i can't imagine why anybody would buy these yeah it's really weird okay so warner brothers has set machete kill screenwriter kyle ward on their upcoming michael bay produced adaptation of concept artist daniel simmons book uh, Cosmic Motors. The book, subtitled Spaceships, Cars, and Pilots of Another Galaxy, is described on Simon's, uh, Simmons' official site as follows. Come explore the vehicle designs of a faraway galaxy called Galax- Galaxion, where futuristic concepts exist in everyday life. Nine different spaceships, pods, race cars, giant trains, warships, and balloons from various planets of the Galaxion system are shown from concept to completion. Daniel Simon is... Uh, Daniel Simon, I guess it's Simon. Daniel Simon. Simon is an established senior car designer who has spent the last several years focusing his talents on futuristic concepts for such automakers as Bugatti, Lamborghini, and Lamborghini. In his uh, first book, Cosmic Motors, each uh, chapter shows the design process of a unique uh, vehicle. From the first... I, <laughs> sorry, I'm starting Just, to have trouble well, reading Dude, this. it's not your fault. The, the whole paragraph is clunky. From the first ideation sketches to the stunningly detailed 3D models to the final photorealistic full-spread renderings. What kind of a movie is this even going to make? I don't who, even understand. Who, who is writing the internet these days, TJ? I don't know. We need to get somebody on the uh, quality control for the internet. There's something seriously wrong here. <laughs> yeah. Well, thank you for putting that into the show notes. We needed a good laugh. Yeah. Well, I mean, just think, I mean, it's Michael Bay produced, so how could it go wrong, right? I mean, yeah, that's it, box office gold right there. Yeah. I mean, what we could have just called this post was Machete Kills Michael Bay's Cosmic Motors. <laughs> yeah. I, I'm not and sure. Maybe like add some explosions in there somewhere. I'm looking to see. I don't think Machete Kills actually did that good at the box office. I think it flopped. Which Aww. is good, um, as far as I'm concerned. Hmm. The um, yeah, it, uh, the production budget is not available on Box Office Mojo. It couldn't have been much, but it only brought in $15 million worldwide. Uh, and I'm pretty sure the production budget was more than that. I could be wrong. I could be wrong. The domestic total is only $8 million. Anyway, so on the other hand, you've got... you know, so, And Machete Kills looked extremely stupid. On the other hand, you've got uh, Michael Bay... So, uh, and he, despite this stuff being just as stupid, he makes tons and tons of money at the box office. What was that other movie he recently produced? Oh, yeah, the Ninja <sighs> Teenage Turtles. Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Well, you know, that wasn't so bad. Yeah, it's different. He's not in the director's chair. So, uh, but but this concept even just sounds so like, what, what movie is there even here to make? Well, that reminds me of something else I was going to talk with you about sometime. Now is as good a time as any, I think. Because... That was one of the big bummers about The Man of Steel. I think that we all were expecting Christopher Nolan to have more of an influence on the film because he was producing it with his wife. And all things considered, we saw how, you know, Christopher Nolan is a fabulous director. He even had a good hand in writing his movies. But when he took the producer's chair, he didn't really do all that much for the movie. Well, I think that, you know, to be fair, the movie is the director's movie. I mean, you know, there's no getting around that. Well, see, that's the thing, though. Sometimes I notice critics and the pundits, they like to criticize the production studios, and other times they like to criticize the directors. And I wonder about that sometimes. Like, does do any of us really know 
um, in many of these examples if the producers were at fault or if the directors were really at fault? And sometimes it can be a combination. I mean, it's not to say, and it depends on, on you know, how trusted the director is, what the contract says, and then who gets final cut. You know, um, good big name directors like Michael Bay or, or like Christopher Nolan or like, um, what's the guy who did... Uh, Man of Steel, uh, Zack Snyder, uh, they, I'm, I'm, I'm certain they all have final cut. They don't, the, the studio doesn't have final cut. They have final cut. It's in the contract. I'm, I'm quite certain. And then on the other hand, when you've got a relatively unknown director or, you know, one who's desperate for work, um, the studio is probably going to have final cut. And, and, and on all Marvel movies, the Marvel Studios has final cut. So the director's vision is largely what we see, but if Marvel Studios disagrees with the something that the director did they have final cut they can change it so it mm. just depends on the contracts it depends on the movie but in in general what you see on the screen is the director's vision um and 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 especially with a, a movie with a big name director so interesting I, I would agree and i basically think that that's been true throughout all hollywood history true yes and, and even so there there have been a few exceptions and it varies from film to film but I I think that in general the producers probably get more criticism than they deserve because it mm. seems to be that the producers can uh, you know decide that a film is worth making find a, a spec script and they can say oh yeah we we like the sound of this script and they can go looking for a director but then it's the, the director I think that takes a lot more of the responsibility once the production is in full swing yeah and you know the producers are just providing the money I mean come on. And the script is supposed to speak for itself, and then it's the director who has to decide how to make it well executed. Yeah, I mean, the first the first person I look to or go to if I don't like a movie is the director. Uh, mm. You know, second place I look is the script, and then the third place would be the you know the production company or the studio or the producers or whatever other influences might have interfered. Because you know, oftentimes you will see something you say, "No, I know that wasn't that director. I know that was studio interference." So mm. anyway, interesting side topic for sure. Yeah, sure. So you wanted to talk about another reboot. Yeah, and 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 I I'm curious. Have you seen uh, the Underworld series? <laughs> no. Are you kidding? Like, I, if it weren't for, uh, okay. Well, I mean, I've seen a few vampire films, but honest to goodness, I just don't care about the the sci-fi horror monster movie genre. Hmm. Like that mashup just doesn't appeal to me. Well, I mean, it looks kind of interesting to me. I've not seen any of the films yet. It's been on my list to at least watch the first one and see if there's anything there. Um, but it hasn't been that long since Underworld was was first made. Um, in fact, I'm, I'm looking up the uh, the date now um, to see when Underworld 2000, 2003, uh, starring Kate Beckinsale, of course, and uh, Michael Sheen, uh, Bill Nye. Uh, let's see if there's any other names in there we recognize. All right, so so obviously Kate Beckinsale headlining that franchise at least for the first film, and I think for the third film, if I have that remember that right, one of the films she was not in, uh, which was a prequel, I believe. My point My- is, the 2003 is when the first film came out, and uh, they've been you know ma- they've made three of them, so it hasn't been that long, and they're already rebooting this franchise. And I don't know anything about the franchise yet because I haven't seen any of the films, like I said, but. Um, I just I'm I'm really tired in general of the reboots coming so soon after the original films like like kind of like the Spider-Man trilogy. I, I, why do we need to reboot that so soon? I'm I'm just tired of it. I don't know. I because uh, well I, well why not? I mean like if you had a hamburger a couple of weeks ago, are you saying you won't get a hamburger now? You got to wait a few more years before you, before you have another hamburger. I think a more apt description is we had pizza Monday night, we had pizza Tuesday night, we had pizza Wednesday night, 
Let's not have pizza Thursday night. <laughs> okay. Pizza is great. I love pizza. I, I, uh, in fact, I just tweeted to somebody who said something about pizza. I said, I believe the chief end of man is to consume pizza. Uh, a little bit of a <laughs> reformed humor there for you. Um, <laughs> um, but uh, I don't want pizza every single day. That, that would get old very quickly. And that's kind of how I feel about this. I mean, uh, sure, reboot Underworld series in 20 years. Don't reboot it now. And it's just silly. I think. Well, and what's funny too is there are the other potential titles that have never been rebooted because no one wants to go back and touch the sacred original or, you know, step on anybody's toes because, you know, that film has been glorified from the golden age of filmmaking. And I feel like there's been lots of films I would like to see revisited just because the source material was that good or the director mm. had a really good idea that could be built upon. But when you think about comic books and action stars and the action franchises i don't know that people really care about the material or how much of it's uh, how much of it's an echo of the past like bruce willis for instance let's just look at bruce he's got his diehard films and then on top of that he's got like several other films he's done that were action films and and in large part he essentially plays characters that are all a lot alike and his movies are all a lot alike Was it necessary that all those films have different franchises or introduce new plots and new characters and new scenarios and be written from a quote-unquote original story? I don't really think it was necessary. But of course, it, it doesn't hurt anything. I'm all for different writers to tell different stories that are unrelated. But at the end of the day, you know, you prefer to avoid the franchises. And then there's a lot of other people that prefer to stick to a known name like Bruce Willis. Well, and, and so if they can get the same experience over and over again, they're happy that there is a guy who tends to make a bunch of films that have a lot in common. But I think you're missing my point. I mean, to me, it's more of the reboot that, that troubles me. Uh, I'm like, I would have been perfectly happy. I, I like for stories to move ahead. I don't want to reset them and start over. That, and that's essentially, for instance, what Spider-Man did is they reset the story. And yes, they're telling it from a different angle. They're telling a different version of the story. But I would rather see the story and the world move forward. I'm happy to continue to see sequels, although I think Hollywood has sequelitis. And I think we need a lot more original material than we're getting. I'm happy with sequels. I would I would like to see a better balance, but sequels in general are fine because I like to see the world move forward. Look, another great example is my mixed feelings on the Star Trek franchise. I uh-huh. you know I I wanted to see stories move forward in the universe in in Star Trek until Star Trek Enterprise. Uh, this, it was always moving forward. You were always moving ahead. In this whole prequel business, I'm just like no. I, why? We all want to hear more about your your uh, problems with the Star Trek franchise, <sighs> TJ. Yes. Well, I mean, but it, it just speaks to the point that I'm making, which is I don't want to see more reboots. I want to move the stories ahead. I want to move forward. I don't want to move backwards. I don't want prequels. I don't want reboots as much. It's okay to do sometimes. You know, it's it was okay to reboot some things. And and if it wasn't for all the reboots going on, maybe the rebooting of Star Trek would have been fine. But well, speaking just, of the reboots, go ahead. Steve Carell is going to star in Acme-focused live-action Looney Tunes film. Yes, and uh, I'm, I need to pull it up. Chad actually tweeted at me, uh, or at Movie Byte, or, or both. I don't remember. I actually think um, I'm going to like this one, just they, on the basis that I really enjoy Steve Carell's films in general. 
And if they can explore Acme for Looney Tunes and do a good job of it, faithful a little bit more to the classic cartoons, I would be really into this this film. I've shared those cartoons with my kids, and I think that the original concept of the characters is a pretty decent one. And I don't know if I'm right about this, but I have a theory. It seems to be that with all of the cartoon character reboots, besides uh, the likes of G.I. Joe and Transformers, that the things that are a little bit more uh, family-centric and uh, about uh, into the comedy, they're trying to be more faithful to the source material. So things like the Smurfs. I, I, I don't care about the Smurfs. No, but one thing that I think we probably agree on is that the movies are actually rather faithful to the concept of the cartoons. Uh, yes, I, I, from what I know, I, I could agree with that. Right, and so whoever is responsible for this one, uh, Warner Brothers, if they want to use that as their template, if they're looking at that as the inspiration for why this ought to make them some money, then what they'll do is they'll let Steve Carell, who probably can just be Steve Carell, as he usually is, uh, be thrust into the Looney Tunes world. And I would really like that. I would really like it if we could get back to a... A classic representation of all the you know characters, Daffy Duck and Bugs Bunny. I love those characters as they originally were, and I think that we were given a disservice with films like Space Jam and mm. whatever else happened in the in the late '90s and you know afterwards. Well, Chad tweeted at me when I posted this article. Uh, he tweeted at Movie Byte, and he said, They did a CGI live-action mix back in 2003 called Looney Tunes Back in Action that was actually fairly decent. So that's Chad's opinion. I Here's, here's the reason that I... <sighs> so, to me, these are classic cartoon characters from my childhood that I don't know that I will appreciate in CGI form. I like them as they exist. I'll sit down sometimes with the kids and watch them still. And my, my kids, by the way, love them. They love the ori- some of the original Disney cartoons. They love the uh, Looney Tunes and animated stuff. And um, I think it loses some of its charm if you if you make it something else. I, I oh, that's know. a really good point. I have to agree with you there. Um, that that one is a tougher one because hmm, we really. I mean, like for what is worth, I think that the the visuals from just looking at bits and pieces of the Smurfs are really so well done that they're like kind of mesmerizing. They're hard to get your eyes unglued to the, like the technique and the style and the the craftsmanship that went into such, you know, piece of garbage, but that because of it, <laughs> they, they look so good. I think that the classic cartoon doesn't compete, but the difference here is, is that, yeah, you're right. The original source material for Looney Tunes is so good that you'll miss the two the two D animation and I can there's, completely agree. There's something different and magical about it, and it doesn't. It's not about being bleeding edge graphical, you know. And, and this is the thing you do in the 2015. Like, just okay. Think about um, a movie like Enchanted, um, which I thought was delightful, and it was a hybrid between hand-drawn animation and live action sort of like roger rabbit was although this is an entirely different film and genre from in, in many ways from from roger rabbit but but enchanted to me like the style of animation was wonderful and it didn't have to be cgi and it was just this it was wonderful in and, and I, i'd wished and in fact because enchanted is mostly takes place in the real world with real characters i wished that i had had more of that hand-drawn animation it, it, it was it was wonderful. I, I don't know. Maybe I'm, call me an old uh, old geezer. I don't know. <laughs> well, do we even know if Warner Brothers still has a 2D animation department? I really have no idea. 
I, I, I me mean, neither, but I, I just kind of suspect that they wouldn't, um, because it seems like they were, they're dying off or that those people moved their careers into 3d animation. Yeah. It's, it, you know, I, I'm sure there, there's people around that would, could still do it, but, um, I would guess that most of the department is probably digital only. And maybe there's a few holdouts that, that came up with, with hand drawn, but switched to digital and can do both. But it is certainly a dying breed. And I want, I, I want, I don't want it to be a dying breed. I, I want it to, to still have a place. That's, that's what I'm saying. Well, on the other side of the, the coin though here, I, I agree with you that it'd be nice if they could get the 2D animation done well, but my problem with films like Space Jam, apart from the fact that I just didn't like what they did with the characters, was that the 2D animation didn't feel the same. They were trying to modernize it. They were trying to take right. the old and let it be familiar, but add to it with new. And that was something that really irked me because it was like the, the animators couldn't help themselves but change so much of what we really appreciated about the classic animation. And that that kind of broke up the experience for me. I preferred if they had just found a way to do it to a T the way it was in the classic cartoons, but Which maybe again, that's just asking too much of them. I would encourage you to watch Enchanted again. The, the animation was lovely. It, it really took me back to a different time. Um, well, I, and I agree, but TJ, um, Enchanted was actually original characters, like an original cartoon universe. They sure, but ha- the animation style didn't, it did not feel super new, and it, it felt it felt familiar. That's true. Yeah. You, you know, this also what it, this also reminds me of is um, you know back in the '90s when Disney uh, reinvented the Winnie the Pooh cartoons for television, they did their best to try and match not all the qualities, but a lot of the co- the characteristics of animation for Winnie the Pooh cartoons that go back to like what was it the '50s or '60s. Yes. And there were many of the Pooh cartoons there that became very renowned and you know popular and uh, very successful for a long time. Uh, but the thing about the, uh, the cartoon animation in the 90s was that, again, it didn't really matter how hot or not hot the 2D animation was. Mm-hmm. What mattered was the quality of the storytelling. And, what, and, and if, if the story was just not as good as the classics, it didn't matter how much the animation resembled it. Uh, just for reference, I'm, uh, there's a Winnie the Pooh TV series, apparently, that was in 1952. The first film from Disney that I can find is, uh, let me make sure this is from Disney, 1966. It's a short. Um, Winnie the Pooh and the Honey Tree. Uh, I'm not sure this one's actually from Disney. Anyway, but yes, yeah, so 50s uh, and on it would be where well, we would I What I heard was that originally Disney came up with um, a 30-minute cartoon. And then later they created a sequel that was another 30 minutes long. And then they wrapped it up again one more time with another 30 minute installment. And when they came out with the third piece, somehow they went back and edited together the three parts to be one whole film with a narrator that kind of like joined all the stories together. And that was the version that I grew up with as a, as a really young kid. Yes. Um, I, I think I know yeah. which one you're talking about. Yes. And I grew up with that as well. Interesting stuff. Anyway, I mean, just, you know, I, here's the hope. I, I, I like the idea of the, the Looney Tunes being revisited. Um, I have something that just came up that I'd like to insert here, if I might. Um, I opened up my uh, I opened up Tweetbot to look up that tweet that Chad tweeted at MovieBite and saw that I had a um, a mention, and I looked at it and um, it was somebody cc'ing me on another tweet to make sure that I saw it, and it is a friend of mine uh, who says the wife has never seen Star Wars. Let that <laughs> sink in for a minute. 
How do we know these people? I don't know. I don't know. Well, we're here's the fa- thing. We're in the wrong crowd, TJ. Um, both of these, uh, the, 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 both the person that CC'd me on this tweet and, and the other couple uh, are, are younger couples. Uh, they uh, kind of were are more children of the 90s, I, I think. Let me do my math here. Yeah. More children of the 90s and the 80s like us. Um, uh, so I don't know how much that plays into it, but we were actually uh, planning on uh, viewing with uh, the uh, one of the younger couples uh, Star Wars for the first time, and I was going to do Machete Order and, and introduce them to all the Star Wars films that way. With the uh, specialized over, over edition, yeah, and the specialized editions, of course. And so I'm tweeting live on the air here. Uh, what question mark exclamation point question mark Do we need to expand the viewing party question mark And I'm about to send that tweet right now. Well, let tweet. me know. Keep us up to date and let us know all the replies. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and the app uh, follow me, TJ Draper Pro, if you want to see more. Uh, <laughs> so that, that, that was, it was just a little thing. So In other news, Chloe Moretz blames piracy for kick-ass franchise failure. Yes, and this is, this something is ridiculous. I find it very frustrating. Um, there is one. But I reason. understand why they're doing it, but at the same time, it's just it's such a cop out, and it's a misdirection. It's a, it's a complete cop out. It is. It, it's. It's. Oh, hey, I'm going to blame my movie's failure on the pirating. Um, so let's. let's uh, Chloe Grace. Uh, this is from uh, uh, Simon Reynolds and Adam Tanswell at Digital Spy. Chloe Grace Moretz has uh, revealed that she's leaving behind her iconic hit girl role. Speaking to Digital Spy, the actress said that she doesn't believe Kickass Three will happen, and and suggested that. Pir- Piracy resulted in the underwhelming box office performance of last year's sequel. She says, Kick-Ass 2 was one of the number one pirated movies of the year, but that doesn't help us because we need box office figures. We need to prove to the distributors that we can make money from a third and fourth movie. But because it didn't do so well, we can't make another one. If you want more more than one movie, everyone has to go see the movies at the cinema. It's all about the numbers in the theater. But the logic is really poor. What what they're saying is that we made a movie that only appeals to the kind of target group that wants to pirate films. What? Yeah, yeah, that, that, that certainly is a logical flaw. Like piracy, it is piracy. Yes, piracy has a little bit of effect on theater numbers to a very small extent. But there, there is really not very much correlation. There's been a lot of studies done on this. There's not a lot of correlation between someone who pirates movie and someone who goes to the theater. Um, you know, sometimes people do both. Sometimes people do one or the other, or they will do the other if they can't do the one. Yes, there are those cases. But by and large, you you don't stop pirates from pirating. Pirates, pirate, pirate. Uh, that's, that's not what I meant to say. Pirates, pirate movies, pirates, <laughs> pirating, pirates, pirate, pirate. Okay. Uh, <laughs> a little tongue tied there. Um, so this is getting more intelligent all the time. Yes. So, so the, the point here is that she's been learning at the feet of old and stupid studio executives who say that all their problems are blamed on piracy. And if they could just stop piracy, if they could just enact tougher laws on piracy and this and that and the other, they all their problems would go away instead of recognizing the underlying problem here, which is that kick-ass two from all accounts. I have not seen it. I had no interest in seeing it. Um, I did not see the first one. That's just me. It's fine. If you saw it, I'm just saying I had no interest in it. By all accounts, they made a terrible film, and that's why it didn't do well. It, it, it doesn't have anything to do with pirating. And where did they get this number? Where did she come up with this number that it was the number one pirated movie of the year? I want to see where that number comes from because I guarantee you – okay, I am not a novice to these ways, okay? So I looked around a little bit. I couldn't find very many active torrents of Kick-Ass 2, and the ones that I did find were pretty pitiful and not many cedars. So, you can't tell me that was the number one pirated movie of the year, otherwise it'd still be fairly active, and it's not! <sighs> what else? Well, I mean, come on, help me out here, Joe. 
I can't. Uh, the only one I, mean, I just don't like the entire subject because, uh, first of all, like if it didn't do well in theaters, who was recommending it to people later when it came out available by you know home entertainment and pirating? Like who cared enough to track it down and give it a chance? And then those people who pirated it usually would talk about it. And most people who are pirates are closet pirates. Like they only want to talk about their piracy online, but then in real life, they don't talk about pirating. Right, right. So if they ever interacted with anyone else in the human world that would care about the film, they would have recommended it. And the people in the human world would have gone out and bought the film, given it a chance. But again, it just, it doesn't add up. Like there's, there's no kind of. Oh, logical fallacies here, and it just bothers me. Yep. But I, I, I'm sorry for them. I I wish for you know a film success if it deserves it. But right. if the film cannot find its target audience, except for among you know the pirates of the world that only pirate films, then you have a problem because there aren't that many people that can just pirate films and only just pirate films to get their entertainment. Right, right. I mean, think about this. This film is essentially what? It's a comedy about made-up superheroes? Hmm. That sounds an awful lot like something else to me, like maybe Guardians of the Galaxy? <laughs> and look at them. They're raking in the millions. Yeah. So I don't understand how Kick-Ass could be doing so poorly if their movie is so great. Yeah, no, it, it doesn't make any sense. Um, and and I would like to point out to the, uh, Honesty. the people who are saying these things, uh, you know, Chloe Moretz and, and others, especially the studios who continue to blame the problems on piracy. Uh, I'd like to point out what the definition of insanity is oftentimes referred to as doing the same thing over and over again and expecting a different result. Their war on piracy, Joe, is not working. It's the wrong war to fight. Uh, and you know what? In the long run, I think it's only going to hurt uh, the existing studios and distributors. They need to just stop. It's it's the wrong focus. I hope they learn soon enough. <laughs> I'm, I'm well, really concerned about I, the well-being of um, copyrights. Uh, just it seems to all be going downhill too fast. Yeah, and and I think the only way it's going to change is to you know go out with the old guard and come in with the new guard. You know what I'm saying? Like I I think these old media uh, studios and 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 things uh, they 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 think in old ways, and we need you know new. Unfortunately, they need to get out, and we need new people and fresh studios and you know new models. And it's it's slowly changing, but it it is slow. So uh, yeah, I, I find this extremely frustrating. Uh, so <sighs> I think the new model looks a lot more like Netflix. No, it just it just does. Like it won't be long before Netflix is making whole movies. They're not going to be just doing TV shows. I mean, I should hope so that they they decide to break out into the movies as well. And when they do that kind of thing, it's going to shake things up that much more because those movies available just through say Netflix never seeing a, another you know form of its uh, copy on iTunes or via you know a Blu-ray set or something like that. It's going to like. It's going to it's going to teach these the other studios a lesson and they need to get with the program. They need to acknowledge this. Yeah. Speaking of all the reboots, TJ, yes, you want to yes. talk about another reboot? Full House is returning to TV and we're not talking about a reboot. We're talking about Full House returning to TV. 
Wait a minute, so you're saying it's just the continuation of okay. Full House? Well, listen, Peter Serretta over at Slash Film says, Warner Brothers Television is considering, he's calling it a reboot, but I, I would not call this a reboot. He's considering a possible reboot to Full House, uh, the popular ABC television sitcom which ran from 1987 to 1995. The reboot would bring the Tanner family back to television with new episodes, which would even include the original cast. The news comes from TV Guide, which reports that John Stamos, who played Uncle Jesse on the show and has an ownership stake in the series, is leading the charge to make the new show happen. Original executive producer Bob Boyette and creator Jeff Franklin, who's writing the new new version, are actively involved. Candace Cameron Burr, uh, DJ, Jody Sweeten, Stephanie, and Andrea Barber, Kimmy, are on board, while Bob Saget, Danny, and Dave Collier, Joey, uh, Bob Saget, who plays Danny, sorry, I mix those up, and, and Dave Collier, Joey, are also involved in some way. <sighs> Discuss. Well, it seriously sounds like a reboot. Uh, well, see, in order for it to be a reboot, and to me, a reboot is when you reset things. And this is continuing on, uh, basically picking up many years in the future with the same characters. But they're also replacing some people. It sounds um, like they could... My impression, they, from what I've read, and there's a lot more to read on this, uh, check out the link in the show notes, um, but but my impression is not that they're replacing any characters, but that they might have new characters. But but if they can't get the original actor back, it will not be, like, that character just won't be on the show. But they're they're using all the same people... Uh, to play the same oh, okay. parts, and they're in the. In other words, they're picking up. Uh, let's see, ninety five, two thousand five, two thousand fifteen. So they're picking up, you know, twenty years later. And well, saying, okay. So, well, so it's to me that's not a reboot. That it may be a new show, but it's set in the same universe. It's it's almost like Star Trek: The Next Generation in a way, where it's it's sure it's an entirely new show, but it's the same universe, the same characters that you know they refer to the characters that were in the show previously. You, you see what I'm saying? Sure, but uh, why are we talking about this again? Uh, I mean, what, you, what's wait, making... whoa. what do you mean? Why are we talking about this? It's full but, house, dude. It's full house. So what? You know, we're not talking about uh, the Family Guy. Oh I gosh. mean, we're not talking about you know, Modern Family. You know, why? Why are we talking about Full House? Oh my gosh, Joe! Did you not? I, I, I I'm speechless. Did you not watch Full House as a kid growing up? Uh, I did a little bit. My folks, you know, they, they they weren't exactly faithful TV watchers in the 90s. Uh, the TV was on sometimes, and usually it was because I turned it on, just kind of curious to see what the heck was on there. I, Joe, I only have one thing to say to you. How rude! Oh, please, uh, don't remind me of that. <laughs> How can, the, you, how can you not i mean I, i'm not into it because like uh, then and now i i feel like that was just uh cor- too corny show. it's too corny i love that show whatever but, but TG, I, I'm that's not, corny i'm not in favor of the new show let's get that up but, okay, but i want to uh, talk no, no, about let's it. clarify this corny humor is corny whether it was made then or now so what? why would why There's would nothing you wrong with corny humor there was a lot of corny humor in guardians of the galaxy no, there wasn't. Oh, yes, there was. <laughs> oh, yes, there was. I thought the, I thought that the every the delivery, single thing, the delivery and the lines were far superior. Every to Full single House. thing that Drax said was corny. But that was intentional. Yes, like, it was, and so it was in Full House. It was oh, intentional corny. The whole show was intentional corny. Yes, That's the it problem. Was. Drax was an isolated. Oh no, I can't element. be friends with you right now. <laughs> I cannot. I can't. I can't deal with it. I can't handle it. What's happening to the show? Oh, I don't know. This is awful. <laughs> I didn't know this about you. You have no heart, and you have, well, I know we established you have no soul, but I didn't know how bad it was. Full House, dude. That's Full all I'm house. saying. We're talking about Full House. 
I'm gonna oh, man. I, I, this made me want to go back, and I haven't watched it in a few years. It's like I need to go back and watch some of these episodes. Oh, that would bore but me I don't, to tears. Okay, yeah, but I don't want new Full House because I think that that would, um, I, I think that would break the spell. I think Why? that it needs to stay where it was, as it was, and, no, and it needs just, to be well, what it was. And if they bring it into the current TV sets, uh, storytelling, you know, modern storytelling mechanisms and things, I don't think I'm going to like it. I don't think I'm going to like what they'll make of it. And I like what it was, and I don't want it. I don't want it. I don't want the. I don't want. Okay, this well, new l- l- think about it this way, TJ. You were younger then, and you were into it because when you were young, you could appreciate a, but a show like that. But I know plenty of older people who love it, too. Okay, but you're saying that you wouldn't appreciate a show that were brought up to modern times with a, an appreciation Not for a show good like film, this. Uh, television craft, with taking it to the next level, and making it what it could be in Not- the modern area. Not this show. This show's charm <laughs> is that it's of its time. It would not have the same charm or appeal in in 2014. It's just not going to do it. Okay, well, you remember that 70s show. Remember how like uh, the, the no. whole conceit was that they set that show in the 70s and it had to adhere to like what a 70s television show would be like in that time. That show wasn't made in the 70s. What if they did that with Full House? What if the the goal was to like relive whatever made the 90s special where the show just like created new show and new episodes that felt like they belonged in 1993 i can't believe i'm having this conversation with you what, what, what would be wrong with that if you would be willing to go back and watch the originals but, but by the very fact that they're using the same actors they're not going back to that time period they're going to be in the current time it's going to be 2014 in the show so you never really cared about the characters. You didn't care what, what happened to them in the future. What? You're saying that you don't care where the characters are today in their their future. Like you, you oh, didn't you're care saying to you, find you're out accusing what me of, of that. No, no, no. No, I I just think that I just think that this is a bad idea. That's, that's what I'm saying. Okay. I'll, I think I'll it's going it. to I think it's going to ruin the magic for me. Well, hopefully the the show will never see the light of day. I would agree with that. And I think that you need to go back and watch some Full House, dude. Uh, is it on piracy? I mean, can I, can I torrent that? <laughs> I mean, you can pirate almost anything. I'm sure you could. I don't recommend piracy. I don't think that you should, but... Oh, okay. Uh, I can't believe we're having this conversation. It's crazy. <laughs> How, who doesn't like Full House? You uh, Everybody apparently... who, who never got into it. <laughs> That's, I'm sure, more than two or three people. Jeez. At least I, I've checked out that the fan club that hates Full House, the, the the haters of Full House fan club, is at least three members. Last I checked. Can I get you all to gather in one place? I, I don't want to tell you why just yet, but I think I think you I think we should gather you all in one place. You have something special for us? <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah, I'm gonna. Uh, you know that uh, that uh, fake uh, Darth Vader account, or or maybe it's the uh, there's a couple of there's a Death Star account, Death Death Star PR. I'm going to get them to aim their uh, super laser at, at, at your location and take you out. Really subtle. Yes, yes. Well, Joe, shall we move off of this topic that has brought dissension and discord among us? <sighs> yes, please. Let's, let's talk about something else. You let's want to review something, DJ? I think we should review something. Let's review The Giver. From great suffering came a solution. Communities. Injected. Serene, beautiful places where disorder became harmony. Do you know how to fly those? Absolutely. Do you get to fly to the edge? Oh, yeah. 
What's past there? Don't know. We're not allowed to fly past that. Let's go. It's against the rules, Jonas. They're called books. Hello? Uh, my name... I know who you are. Who are you? The Giver. When the elders need guidance, I provide wisdom using memories of the past. Our world was different. There was more. More? Much more. Right. You'll see them all in time. All colors, all differences. Our people chose to do away with emotions. Those morning injections take them away. The Giver was released on August uh, the 15th of 2014. Uh, it had a budget of $25 million. And opening weekend, it brought in $12.3 million. The worldwide gross so far is $36.2 million. Rotten Tomatoes critical acclaim says Philip Noyce directed The Giver with visual grace, but the movie doesn't dig deep enough into the classic source material's thought-provoking ideas. The director, as I mentioned, was Philip Noyce. Writers Michael Mitnick. And Robert B. Wide, I guess that's how you say that, uh, wrote the screenplay, and Lois Lowry wrote the book on which the film is based. It stars Jeff Bridges as the giver, Meryl Streep as the chief elder, Brenton Thwaites as Jonas, Alexander Skarsgård as the father, Katie Holmes as the mother, Odea Rush uh, as Fiona. I have no idea how you say that, but I'm probably not saying it right. I believe she's Israeli. Um Cameron Monaghan as Asher, uh, Taylor Swift as Rosemary, which I did not realize while I was watching the film, and Emma Tremblay as Lily. The composer was Marco Beltrami. We have nobody on here that can tell us about the music, Joe. Can you, do you remember anything about the music? I enjoyed it, and I, I actually took a listen to it. I downloaded it, and I really got into it. It's um, mm. it's a, a very sort of um, a, uh, uplifting, thought-provoking uh, piano piece of music that just makes it kind of like it, it, there's always an uprising momentum to it like you know it's getting it's getting it's swelling it's it's swelling music that sounds like it appreciates something sweet yeah, um, I, I i can echo that i mean i have a general um positive feelings about the musical that i don't remember a lot of specifics although i do remember the little piano thing they did which was wonderful you know where jeff bridges is playing the piano with with rosemary and and, uh, and that was that was great. Uh, and I am going to have to download this and give it. You know, as hard as I try, I'll, 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 at the beginning of the movie, I'll say to myself, "I'm going to give this soundtrack a little bit of a listen so I can have more to say about it." And I usually wind up getting like I get caught up in the whole experience. It's hard for me to single out the music. Yeah, actually, I listened to to it today from cover to cover, and I did my best to try and give every track a rating here. So. All in all, I haven't rated every track, but based on the score I got right now, I'm giving it three out of five stars in terms of like the quality of just listening to the music for the sake of listening to music. Um, a couple of the tracks in soundtracks are usually disappointing because they're just a bunch of like really dark, you know, dramatic in noises <laughs> you know yeah. try yeah. trying to depress you while the villains are getting the upper hand or something. But uh, the good parts are good. The the good parts are definitely worth a, a listen in the background. Well, why don't you tell us about the storyline of this film, Joe? Yes, this the giver. The giver. Yeah. Uh, thank you, sir. Um, sometime in a not too distant future, a society creates a separatist community led by elders, wherein the citizens agree to wipe their memories, take drugs to eliminate emotions, and build a utopia. But the present time of the film starts with a young guy named Jonas who is one of a later generation of children born into the community. 
He's raised by a family chosen for him by the government. He takes his emotion-eliminating drugs like a good member of the community and gets straight A's through his adolescent education. It's on graduation day that Jonas will learn what role he's assigned by the ruling community government. The chief elder, played by Meryl Streep, tells Jonas that he is such a unique individual that he is meant to become the next receiver of memory. He meets his mentor, the giver, played by Jeff Bridges, who starts an unorthodox process of transferring memories to Jonas that clue him into the long-forgotten history of the world outside the community. With the guidance of the giver, Jonas soon understands that his well-meaning community is a dystopia, and the only people who realize this are the giver and Jonas, the receiver. They commit to do whatever is necessary to reform the community before the elders can do any more harm to the citizens Jonas has grown to love. And that is the story. All right. Well, Joe, you um, before we started the show, you mentioned you had not yet looked on Rotten Tomatoes to see what uh, The Giver was rated by the critics. And I said, well, hey, save it for, and let's get your reaction to this uh, score on the show. So why don't you go ahead and open up Rotten Tomatoes there okay. and tell me just what the critics think of this film. And I want to find out what you think about this. Interesting. Okay, well, I'm pulling it up now. Okay. Um, whoa! <laughs> um, what? Exactly. Did we, did we watch the same film? I know. I looked up the, the score after I watched the film, and I'm like, what on earth? Why is this so poorly rated? And I didn't even have the heart to scroll down and see what people were actually saying. This is um, this really isn't fair to the film. What what are they looking at? What are they thinking here's, about? Here's one snippet. This might be an anti-pharmaceutical, anti-cult, anti-plot, anti-suspense allegory. It could also just be Thanksgiving at your robot zombie in-laws. What? Okay, that's one critic. Um, let's see. For much of the movie, viewers will be asking themselves where the conflict is, and by extension, the drama. Well, yeah, it's not an action film. Jeez. Uh, well, th- th- well, in, in Rich, all Rich, truth, the, the film... I usually respect says the magic gets lost in translation. What is wrong with him? Go ahead, I'm sorry. Well, it all depends on where you're coming from. I mean, this is ridiculous, because... I, okay... I, I think very highly of my wife, but all things considered, my wife is usually usually right about these things. She watched the film because she really liked the original books and she read the book. She thought it was worth reading and she has like an insanely good memory. And what she said of the film was, wow, this is like, you know, it's not the most stupendous story of all time, but the film is incredibly faithful to the books. And for what the book is worth, the film is worth it too. Mm-hmm. So it, it, I don't understand why people are seeing such a huge discrepancy between the books and the the, the movie. It like, seems like what I found from various sources today while I was writing my notes and preparing a written review, people were saying that this film was relatively consistent with the book. Yes. I, my understanding is they did make the um, uh, the children much older. Uh, basically, they were be, they were coming into adulthood and graduating from school. Yeah, but so what? No, but, that, but, yeah, that that's what I say. Better. So what? Um, uh, it, but the reason they did that is because they wanted to have a little bit of romance between the primary characters that wasn't in the book, which is also, I thought was fine. I thought from what I can understand, added a fine flavor to the film. Um, I really don't understand where critics are coming from with this 32% rating. It's not, it's not, um, uh, it, it, it's not Shakespeare or anything. Uh, the, the audience, uh, is given an, an overall 67%, uh, of the audience liked it on Rotten Tomatoes, which, which seems a little bit better. Um, yeah, I, I really just don't, I don't get it. 
I, really I trust don't. the audience's sensibility way over the, the the critics here because I think that the critics are paying attention to the wrong details. They're trying to grade it as if it were an essay and how many fancy words did it use and you know did it did it have enough twists? Uh, this is ridiculous, people. Well, this is uh, not what you're going to watch a movie for. What you're going to watch a movie for is a its entertainment value. Can you get into it? And what do you think its target audience was? It wasn't critics the target audience wasn't academia the target audience was you know middle school kids like that was what the story was originally written for and it seems like the film faithfully carries that notion i i I, here's what i think is happening i think that the problem that's really going on here is that the the critical audience expects dystopias to be far grittier darker um more angsty they're they're looking for equilibrium they're looking for something that like shakes their their understanding and you know security in the known world and this film isn't trying to do that what this film is trying to do is effectively introduce the concepts of a social science fiction universe and a dystopia to a very young adult audience so that they can appreciate these things and with their feet a little bit when it concerns things about dystopia it seems like a lot of the films are too dark for, you know, a general audience yeah. or for the young adult audience. Well, I'll tell you one of the other things I think that's going on. There's a couple of, there's a couple of things going on here. Uh, one of them, I think this, this review is telling, for much of the movie, viewers will be asking where the conflict is. What that means is, I didn't see enough things go boom, you know, which is odd coming from a critic. Like, I, you know, I, I like to sit down and get enthralled in the drama of the thing without the I don't know, TJ. I think maybe they would like boom. to be on drugs. I think what they're really <laughs> saying is they'd like to be on drugs and live in that kind of society because it seems rather perfect. Well, the other issue, the other issue that I think critics are having is that I think critics are easily bored. I've noticed this trend over time. Uh, critics are easily bored with a no, genre. No, really? A, yes, and they see too many movies, just like you and me. Uh, we we only see one film a week. Many critics see m- much more than that. Even so, at one film a week, I can see how you can get burned out on stuff, and I guard against that very carefully. I try to view a film as if I haven't seen a, a film like this in a while. Oh, thank you. You're, you're adjusting. I didn't have time to do that. Um, uh, we're talking about the show notes. Uh, anyway, um, so, you know, I guard very carefully against getting in that mindset of, oh, it's another one of these. No, I try to judge a film on its own merits. And I think that that um, the critics are feeling a general sense of uh, of, of um, overwhelming uh, – over, being overwhelmed with the young adult genre, uh, with, with the dystopian genre in general. And – it's funny because this may be one of the, the most recent films to be made in the genre, but it was one of the first books in the genre. So in a way, it was the first one to do it. And the 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 book explosion, the young adult uh, dystopian explosion, uh, such as The Hunger Games, uh, Divergent, etc., are all kind of flowing out of this book, The Giver, uh, which, by the way, I didn't know much about before I had seen the movie, which is interesting. Uh, I want I want to read the book now. Um, and And so – I don't know. These critics, they just get bored with this stuff. And and I think – I look at the movie and I say, hey, this is a pretty good movie. And in fact, I would say that I was engaged and enthralled pretty much – pretty quickly. Even though it's a slow-moving film, I will give them that. There's nothing well, you, wrong with a slow-moving film though, Joe. Yeah. Well, you touched upon something and I think you're right. The film feels um, – another way of thinking about it is that the film feels a little familiar because it is a genre film. Social science fiction and dystopian films feel a lot yes. alike. 
Yes. And for this reason, some people don't appreciate the film for introducing these concepts to younger audiences, mm-hmm. but they they really should because that's what this film is accomplishing. It's not trying to dazzle the people that are familiar with dystopians. It's trying to uh, make that accessible to a young audience. And I could see this film played for uh, students in school. I could see introducing the genre uh, to kids, my kids at home with this film when I think they're old enough and they're, they're ready for it. So I, I'm actually kind of looking forward to it because I, a Jeff Bridges is one of my favorite actors. We, we should go on and talk about a little bit of the cast. Yeah. let's do uh, that. Jeff Bridges is a solid actor and that was one of my main interests in the film. The second one was Meryl Streep who is a fantastic actress. Now, I want to talk about these separately because I have very different opinions about their performances and their characters. First yeah. of all, I completely understand that the source material was not written with Jeff Bridges and Meryl Streep in mind. It was written back in 93. Yes, but that and, said, I think Jeff Bridges was wonderful. And I absolutely agree. And from what I can tell, Jeff Bridges actually has been in favor of this story for a very long time. It's kind of he, like a passion project for him, actually, from what I've heard, is that he's something he's been wanting to make for quite a while. And I can respect that. I, I, I'm right there with it. Like, I can totally understand why he would take an interest in this story, because it's really something that opens up many cans, cans of worms that society needs to start addressing and confront, because we're we're going into some really bad directions with things like euthanasia. And um, the book addresses that kind of thing. And if you're willing to accept that what the book points to, out to be true, it, it, what's good for the fiction is also good for our, you know, our reality. And if it's not good for this, um, this, you know, community of the film to be doing these things, then people come on, apply the same morality to your own world. And, uh, so I can I can appreciate get on board with Jeff Bridges. The the movie does a good job of uplifting a better, more ethical society and like putting the scientific community in check. The yes. my problem though with the the characters is it feels like a lot of these characters were not written with particular actors in mind. And a lot of movies these days are. The a lot of movies are written with like, you know, what we what do we think about Robert Downey Jr. What would Robert Downey Jr. do? Oh, oh, we can totally see this. And then the writers write something down and they say, that's it. That is, you know, breathing life into Tony Stark. It, his essence reminds us of Robert Downey Jr. And they feed off of each other, you know? And and so that kind of thing happens a lot with, um, with very um, engrossing characters. But what you have with this is that that's not happening. It seemed to me that the this film... Uh, just let the, the characters kind of be the characters. And if that is the case, then unfortunately, because you have a dystopian society chopped full of people that have suppressed emotions, actors don't really know how to act when they're not allowed to express themselves. Well, I mean, and I, in that regard, I had a couple of issues. One is that I think Meryl Streep was absolutely the wrong choice to play the role that she was playing. Thank you. I totally agree. That's I, what I was getting to. I, I really did not 
understand what she was trying to do with that role. I didn't understand her motivations. I didn't understand anything about that role. I think she did a, a, a terrible job. Uh, whether it was her or whether it was the way the character was written or whether it was the way the script was written I, or the director, I can't say. Jeff Bridges, as, as good as Jeff Bridges was, he was fantastic. Meryl Streep was exactly the opposite. So that was the first issue that I had with the casting or I should say with the characters. The second issue that I had is that with our – especially our, our three primary young people that we kind of focused on, I saw them emoting all over the place all the time. Like well, I don't understand this. In many ways, they seem like normal kids just raised very differently with different ideas of manners and, and conventions, but yet they experienced uh, – you know, they laughed a lot and they, they seemed to experience emotion. And then they, then they tried to have it like, well, but I don't understand what these feelings are or whatever, but that didn't make any sense. So I felt like that was poorly portrayed, that particular aspect of the film. Hey, I, I I can see your point. You know, I didn't I didn't really think about it too hard, though. I I kind of noticed that in the back of my my mind, but I guess I just kind of accepted it because we like to think that if you're emotionless, you don't have an opinion about something because you're you're not passionate about what you think. But I think what the film was trying to suggest wasn't so much that people literally don't have expression; it's just that they don't have emotion. And so if you're trying to be very cordial to other people throughout society, you'll smile to them. You know, you will, you will laugh because you are trying to be, um, uh, likable. You're trying to get and just get along. You're just trying to follow the dictates of your society. And that was already established. Like they made it clear that in this society, they expect people to behave a certain way. And if you follow that train of thought, then you will pretend your way through it. You you can be completely unhappy inside or completely, you know, elated, but act very calm. You know, inside you can feel very differently than you 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 pretend to be on the outside or you you seem expressive on the outside. You know, and I think that that's where I kind of allowed gave them creative license to 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 seemingly emote when they really weren't. Um, but you, you have a point there, actually. Uh, I'll think about that more when I watch it the second time. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, and I find that to be true a lot uh, when they're trying to do emotionless things. In fact, I think that the closest that I've ever seen uh, to doing it well was Equilibrium, uh, the film Equilibrium starring Christian Bale. Um, they did that well. A lot of other films try to do the emotionless thing, and they, they get it wrong. Uh, even, even you know, um, Spock, for instance, who was – yeah, everything goes back to Star Trek, Joe uh, – who was supposed to be emotionless, he would emote a lot in the beginning uh, of Star Trek, and he kind of fell into character later and understood what it meant to be emotionless. But I feel like that's a shortcoming a lot of times with a lot of things where somebody's supposed to be emotionless and they're they're not. Interesting. Um, yeah. Hey, going back to Meryl Streep for a second, what we we wanted to clarify was that she's actually supposed to kind of represent the the antagonists group, the the antagonists party in the film, and for that reason, it I perhaps imagine how she could the character could come across as much more tyrannical or um, you know, intimidating from a read of the novel mm -hmm. but for the sake of the film she wasn't horrible enough in the film and she didn't add so much to the film either uh, i like to compare this character to donald sutherland's president snow in the hunger games yes and between those two snow is a much more effective villain and donald's performance is much better well, and I think this goes back to one of the other general complaints I have. Uh, this isn't going to be a very structured podcast, is it, where we talk about our likes and we talk about our dislikes because they're kind of getting mixed all in here. But uh, one of the complaints that I did have was that because of the emotionless nature of everything, 
on, on you know even though I complained on the one hand that all the children were emoting, they did pretty good with the ad- adults. You know the children are supposed to be taking this medication that keeps them from emoting, so it doesn't make sense that they're still emoting. Oh well, you can say well that's the children, whatever. But the adults were much more emotionless in general, and um, y- you know in the case of Meryl Streep, she had like literally no emotions, and um, it-, it was hard to connect with her as a as a villainous character. Uh, because she had no emotions, literal, and, and and later I think you started to see it a little more. But in the beginning, you're like, well, I mean, it's it's hard to connect with any of the characters because they're so emotionless, and that that is a real shortcoming. And how do you overcome that when they're supposed to be emotionless? And I don't, I don't know. And and kind of like you already brought up, I don't think there's many good films where they can go back and say, hey, look at how successful it paid off here. Let's just emulate that because not everybody wants to you know to copy equilibrium's performances and every now and then though you you can do that with other genres and you can do that with other uh case examples like there's enough films that have been very successful dramas that if an actor goes in and starts channeling uh say orson wells for a role today nobody's going to necessarily notice notice that he is channeling orson wells because the the two are very very far removed Mm -hmm. from each other so this is a this is a niche genre subgenre that is fertile for better examples of this sort of emoting or non-emoting. <laughs> um, I, I, you know, let's go back to one other thing. Okay. I wanted to give the giver the occasion to fully express himself. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm, I'm actually talking about the giver, the man in the movie, which was Jeff Bridges character. Right. I really wanted that character to have the occasion to fully express himself and find happiness in something. You know, we really liked him and he seemed to be like just Jeff Bridges all the way doing what he can do. Great. Even with a very, uh, thankless role. Like it seemed like his character has a great deal of importance to the story, but when it's all said and done, it seems like most of these characters are thankless. So much of the glory is given to Jonas who is actually not necessarily the most fascinating character. He just happens to do the most important things because he's having so many new experiences throughout the course of the story. Yeah. The giver is there just to give Jonas lots of information. But in the course of it, that guy represents a very unique individual in society because the community at large have no memory of anything outside of their own culture. And in their culture, all they know is what they've been told they must think and act upon. But the giver is the one exception. This guy belongs to the community. He is, he is looking out for the well-being of the community, but he also has uh, special knowledge of everything outside of the community. He has history at his fingertips. He, he actually has memories of people who have gone through all sorts of unique experiences around the world. Who knows how they, they even accomplished that? They, they, the film doesn't explain how that's accomplished. Reasons. Sci-fi. Yes. Uh, <laughs> sports ball. And the, the, but the character, the giver, even though he is this guy who has access to all of his emotions and knows what is right, and he is still able to benefit from the community and uh, appreciate beauty and love and art and other things that they cannot he 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 stands this opportunity to to be the most complete well-rounded person but he wasn't a complete person because he was stifled at every turn by the community and that kind of frustrated me because i I just kept on wanting the giver to, to come into his own and uh or at least to like really work alongside of jonas 
but it seems like the character was was just kind of very fearful and and a bit too sheltered. He had been sitting in that basement for too long. Yeah, but I thought that was I really actually thought that was more effective as part of his character. Um I mean, I did wonder, well, if if you've had these thoughts and I mean, you could have gone and and broken the barrier at any time, right? Why didn't you? Um, you know, you could just slip away uh, while nobody's paying attention, and and he didn't. So I did find that frustrating. But I did I did find though that his uh, being uh, kind of uh, what how how did you put it um, uh, stifled by the community actually worked in the favor of the character. I thought because it, it kind of added to the character as he was. I, I don't know. I, that didn't bother me that that particular aspect. Mm. Um, well, then let's talk about some of the likes. I wanted to talk about the pro life aspect of this film. Um, and this is where I will probably lose listeners to, because I know that I have a wide range of, of listeners. Uh, not everyone is uh, pro-life as I am uh, and as you are, I know. But um, yeah, Well, if you're going to lose listeners because of the pro-life message, then you're, the whole movie is going to lose those listeners. True. That's true. But, but I, you know, so here's the thing. You know, I, I, I see a disconnect between these um, – and, and I don't use the term derogatively or, or negatively because I consider myself neither a liberal nor a conservative. But a lot of the liberals who are pro-choice, they consider themselves compassionate and, and, and whatnot. And yet, it, 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 to me, that is such a disconnect from what some of the things are that they actually believe. And I look at this film and I see, well, this is kind of the logical conclusion of where that's going. You know, you have this compassionate dad who is they, – they call it releasing. They release these babies who don't make the cut or you know they have a quota and they're over quota and this one is more healthy and weighs more. And so they release the baby and so he does it ever so gently, you see, and he injects it with the poison that will kill it. Uh, and, and you know he's so compassionate and caring, but he's killing the baby. You know, and and this is this is I mean, you know, it's a question of, you know, for that for pro 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 choice people they say, oh, well, that's, you know, the baby's been born it's on the outside of the womb. No, it's no different. It's really no different. Um, and, and that's, it's, it's a very powerful message, I think. I mean, the same thing with, you know, this is becoming an issue too, though not here in the U.S., but there's, I know there's been bills introduced in the U.K. for assisted suicide and, and things like this. And you, you know, they have that same thing going on and it's a dystopia when that's going on. You know, they're, they're releasing these, these, uh, older people. They're quote unquote releasing them. They're killing them. I mean, I, I thought it was fantastic and powerful, and especially it, it, it's almost like casual at first, and it really kind of hits you. And, and is when when they come when they, I don't know, it's about an hour, hour fifteen minutes um, into the film, wouldn't you say? When they have that really powerful scene where he's watching uh, his father, quote unquote, father from his family unit. It's not his biological father because nobody knows that biological mothers and fathers are, but he's watching his father from his family unit release the baby. I don't know about you, but I, I was I was having to wipe away tears from my eyes just so that I could see the film. Yeah, it was, it was really, it really was, stirring. Because it was very impactful. It, it came out of left field, and it makes complete sense once it happens. It, I don't know if, how, how deep it was into the film. I'd guess it was maybe two-thirds of the way through. Right. But by that time, you kind of thought, well, maybe there is an easier way for Jonas to f- help fix the community's problems. Maybe the problem is the people at the top just need to be replaced with better people. Or yes. maybe there is a, some unlockable secret where they just can get help from the outside world to basically get more knowledge, more information. Maybe the problem is that they have been sheltered 
and they would just be a better become a better place if they could share their culture with the outside world. Like these were ideas that were running through my head earlier on, and then when I I understood what the film was doing with the concept of the receiver of memory and the giver, where he was bequeathing these memories, all the emotions and feelings down to the, even the senses that came with these memories to Jonas, I realized, oh, okay, this is actually going to have a bit more substance than all that. And that's good. And so then what they did is, yeah, they introduced the idea of euthanasia. And yes. it, it didn't matter if you were old and now useless to society or if you were just an infant. And yeah, like you said, uh, they had one too many babies one year. Uh, they, then that one would be cut off. Um, and if you haven't seen the film, I guess the logic behind this is is that the the community has a set borders. It, it's it's only got so many houses. It's only got so much to maintain all of its resources, and everybody has to, uh, you know, maintain the balance. And the idea is that they maintain this balance by having very rigid structures, very system systematic approach to society. They cannot have one more, you know. Uh, you know, like landscaper than is necessary. <laughs> you know, it's it's really right. bad. Right. And so, um, so if you have one more person, th- there are no visitors allowed into the community. There are no outsiders, and they don't know well, to, if to, there to, are people on the outside world. Right. Well, and to be fair, like, um, they're kind of up on this kind of mountain thing, and the, you know, the outside world is, as far as we know, dead and gone. Like, who knows what's going on out there? Um, it's, it's, you know, it's, it's very kind of enclosed and, and, and whatnot. You know, I asked my wife about that and she had a different point of view. Are you familiar with M. Night Shyamalan's The Village? Not yet, no. Oh, you got to go and see that. I, I know, remember I we, I harassed you about this like a hundred episodes, TJ, a hundred episodes ago. I probably harassed you about this movie. Anyway, you got to go see that film. Ah. <sighs> We, we got to start a drinking game, people, because we are <laughs> saying on our show way too often there are films that he or I or both of us have never seen. Okay, so we are my, so sorry. <laughs> my, drink is, my drink is gone, so I can't participate in the drinking game. The, the, the village story has a lot in common with this one. I don't want to spoil it for you and anybody else out there who happens to be related to TJ. Um, <laughs> this situation where like there is a, a sheltered society and one of the people is able to break free from it and they come to find out that the world outside is very different from the world inside of their society and my wife got the impression when they have the cabinet at the end of the film that that was a literal place and jonas was actually going to get rescued but there's enough mystery there that it's shrouded the real intent of the ending is interpretive and I don't know what they did with the following books in the series, but I sure hope they can make a sequel for this film. My understanding is that there's no sequel per se. There are other books, but they're telling the story from a different perspective. It's not like there's more to the story. That's my understanding. That said, I mean, they could write more, but there's, that doesn't exist right now is my understanding. Interesting. It's well, kind of there left, are... what, what happens at the end, which we won't spoil, but it's very – at least now. But it's, it's interesting what happens at the end, and it's kind of left up to the imagination of what's going on. I'm not saying there wasn't more people out there. I'm just saying like you know, as far as anybody else knows, there are no other people. Nobody ever visits them. Nobody's allowed you – know, there's almost like a, a – you know, because of the way – where they're at, nobody ever comes up there. Um, yeah. Interesting. The first book was um, published in 93, and right. the most recent one was in 2012. So there is a good possibility, I guess, unless you know somebody can tell us otherwise, that th- th- there could be more to the story. Yeah. There could still be more books written. It could be, yeah. I wanted to go back to some of the likes. Um, real quick, production values. I wanted to mention that this film 
was really well made. Like oh, the, man, the world yeah. building, the set dressing, the costumes, the technology and architecture of the community was really, really well designed. It really it felt- was. And and I've heard people complaining about the black and white and they didn't understand it. And, and it's like, you know what? Go home. Just go home. It was fantastically done and, and, and made so much sense. And and it was very creative use of it, I thought, you know, because, you know, filmmakers tend to like black and white, right? And they try to look for excuses. I remember uh, the director that I used to work with, he would look for excuses to, to make things black and white or whatever. This had a really good way of doing it where the color, people didn't see things in color because they had a very big emphasis on sameness. Right. And, well, I, and loved, the thing too I is, loved what they did with that. You're expecting color to try and make what you're watching in the film that much more compelling because we – the viewers are still emoting, you know, like we are, that's like what we should do. Right. Right. But because it was in black and white, it does sap a lot of your emotion from the experience of watching its playback. And when they finally bring color into the picture for a significant story building moment, it, it means that much more. It did for me because I was like, ah, oh, yes, thank you. What a relief to see color again. And, um, I, I feel like it wasn't style for style's sake, and you're right, that was very important. But but more so than just like what they did with, you know, color, though I, I understand that that's a big deal to a lot of people. It felt like this was a literal place somewhere in the world. Like oh, sure. even though the town is set on a mountain peak above the clouds, I bought into the world building very quickly. The film uh, the the feel of the culture there was consistent with other sci-fis and it didn't, I didn't bother me if they borrowed props from other films. Yeah. Although I didn't really notice them borrowing props from other films. Not, not particularly. I mean, I suppose a lot of general concepts that were, yeah, yeah, that's that's what I mean. Um, yeah, I, one of the things that I really loved that they did visually, um, I, I don't know if you noticed, I'm, I'm sure you did if you'll think about it, uh, or maybe you are, you just did notice, um, is that everybody in that community was white. Um, and, and, and I've even heard some people criticizing. I was listening to a podcast where they kind of criticized it a little bit for, uh, there's no, but there's a very good reason for that. I thought it was very deliberate. Everybody is white until Joe, until he's getting the memories and he's seeing people across the world of all different colors, of all different, um, ethnicities. And you, and you go, wow, there's more than just us white folks in the world. And I really love that. And, and, you know, when you're seeing the film mostly in black and white and all of a sudden there's an explosion of color and there's dark skin and there's, you know, there's uh, Oriental folks and there's uh, folks from Africa and 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 the the wide um, the world is not the same. It's not about sameness like like they continue to use the word sameness in the community. It's not about sameness. The world is about diversity. And I really, really love the way they, they pulled that together. And I thought it was very deliberate that everybody in the community was white. Right. And that's funny, too, that you should bring up the sameness issue, because didn't. The chief elder during like the graduation ceremonies where everybody got their professions assigns uh, assignments to them. Didn't she say something to the effect of like their individuality that day was also being celebrated? And it's it's like doesn't that isn't that like a huge contradiction for your sameness, which seems to be right. the well. She I think she said something like while we strive for sameness, we do recognize the little bitty bits of. It wasn't like I mean she's basically saying we recognize these little bitty bits of individuality and give you slightly different jobs in our community, sort of thing. I guess uh, it, yeah. it was, I felt like that was a huge contradiction, but. I, I, whatever. I, I understand that the, this this film could not be entirely the story, even the story itself could not be a perfectly consistent, you know, manufactured world. Um, 
like just down to the fact that at some point their ancestors, their founders of the dystopia, they had to make the decision to, you know, euthanize and when in so doing, they thought that they were making a perfect utopia, but then someone actually like rationalized that and they thought, no, no, this is good. We are going to kill people when they're old and no longer useful to us. And sure. that's good. No, but I yeah. mean, like, but you, I mean, come on. Like, I think the majority of people know deep down that that's, that's wrong. That's, well, that's actually bad. Do. Of course they do. So, and there's a reason for that, but I mean, you yeah. Know. So there, the, my point there being is really that there are just some inconsistencies that this kind of story cannot, you know, really deal with. Um, which kind of brings us into our dislikes, or if you're ready for them, I am. I am. Um, we already talked about Meryl. Uh, another thing that kind of bugs me: you brought up the memories. Uh, let's talk about the memories for a minute. Yeah, um, I, I didn't understand the way the memory barrier worked. Like, what the what? I don't. You, how does how does he crossing a, a an invisible barrier give everybody memories? What in what is that? Oh, whoa, he just like flew right up to the spoiler. <laughs> I, I mean, if you listen to this show, you should assume spoilers. Yeah, yeah, you're right. Um, well, I wanted to, uh, let's backpedal just a second because okay, I wanted okay. to ex- talk about how the memory tricks work in the first place. I was thinking early on in the film that they were taking drugs so that somehow their emotions would be suppressed and other things about their biology was being altered that we didn't understand or appreciate until some reveal later in the film would happen. Yes. But then there's also this other peculiarity that the the receiver of memory, the giver, that guy, he alone has ever been exposed to the memories of the outside world. Yes. And then he is personally found a very personal person-driven way to mentor Jonas and pass on those memories to him. We can talk about the method in which the memories are transmuted <laughs> to Jonas Well, but Jonas I mean, that's a, a sci-fi second. thing. That's fine. That's a sci-fi thing. It's a sci-fi thing. thing. But it, 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 too, is very hard to, to believe. Nah, see, I'm, I, I feel like, you know, they, they genetically enhanced and modified these specific people to be able to transfer memories in this way. That, that didn't bother me so much. The, there was, there was a, a logic, to me, it was logical the way that worked. Okay. Uh, I, I, I bought it pretty quickly because it came so early in the film. But I, I, and by the end of the film, it, wasn't, it was a moot point. It really didn't matter to go back there and complain about that particular detail. Yeah. But the much bigger problem was that... Nobody has any information of the outside world because they've never encountered anything about the outside world. And Jonas has this idea that he can help reform the society by breaking down some undescribed invisible barrier, break through the borders of the community, the physical space, go across land and pass through an invisible fence. And in so doing, some technological force that we do not know anything about would shut down or reset. And when that happens, all of a sudden, everybody in the community would have their eyes opened and have some special knowledge. And we have no earthly idea what, but it was as if suddenly all the effects of their drugs would wear off and 
they would suddenly have memories of the outside world that they had never, ever encountered before. And who knows how they would be transmitted to everybody in the entire community. Right. So I guess the idea, uh, let me see if I can break down what I, what I think the idea is, even though I think it's ludicrous, even for sci-fi. It's like, what? Okay. So I think the idea is that the drugs, uh, suppress emotions and they do some other, you know, physiological changes to the body. Um, and, and that's, that's the one thing. The other thing is that there's some technology in place that like there's a, 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 a field surrounding everyone that suppresses memories. Um, and so that they cannot have memories of the outside world. There are no memories of the outside world, but, but there's a, uh, a, like this, this, um, technological presence or field surrounding them that makes it happen. And somehow, and this is, again, I'm, I'm this trying is to even hard to relate on the podcast. As it's hard to I just can, describe this from what I understand from the film. Um, is that when the receiver of memories crosses the invisible barrier, um, and they, they made the invisible barrier, barrier visible in that, like, kind of like a force field receding once he crossed it, um, then every, then that field goes away for some reason that we're not told, and everybody can remember things. Now, here's, that's the best that I can relate it from what they were trying to do, what I believe they were trying to do. Now, how does this even work? Because these people, they've made it very clear that they have been here for generations, that they're the original people that started the community are no more. And what memories can they have? Or are they some sort of genetic memories that are in them that are being suppressed? Like, what? Is, I, I just didn't understand. Like, there, there is no such thing as genetic memory that we understand, and it was never explained. Uh, the, there is genetic memory. We don't have it as humans, is what I mean. Uh, I understand scientifically with some animals that there is genetic memory um so i i I don't uh i don't understand what they're trying to say i don't understand how that worked it just it was ludicrous it's hard to explain the film doesn't do a very good job to explain it either and because it it is so complicated they kind of gloss over it with just a couple of pieces of dialogue between the giver and the receiver right They, they had no they had no desire to explain it but to make it effective at the end of the film when there is that moment of truth and it does work. Okay. I'm sorry, but that's like, I'm sorry. We literally gave away everything there is about the ending there. I'm sorry, but but hopefully you've already watched the film. Yes. It, It is really confusing, but to make up for it, the music became really victorious like at that moment, it swells, it gets dramatic. There's yeah, a choir. That. It's like, yes, ding dong, the witch is dead, and everybody <laughs> lives happily ever after right now, and everybody should be okay. Right, right. And and it's like, okay, we we got the point. You're really stressing that that was the solution. Just buy it, y'all. You know that that kind of moment happened in the film, and that was greatly disappointing. But I mean, at the same time. <sighs> Even though so much of the movie hinges on this plot element, I I really don't care because it was the film was good enough with or without this uh, sci-fi contrivance. Yeah, yeah, no, that it it works for its own little myth. It works for its own little science fiction world. You know, I agree. I mean, it's it's just like this film could have been better. It would have been higher, more highly rated if this major plot point had been better conceived. Um. You know, while we're talking about our dislikes, one of the other things that I had trouble understanding was was um, the Jeff Bridges character, the giver, kept referring to Rosemary, the previous uh, receiver of memory who we haven't even talked about, which is fine. You, you go watch a movie. But the there's previous a lot receiver, of things that we haven't got to. The, the previous a receiver lot of, of memory uh, was named Rosemary, and he kept referring to her as his daughter. I didn't understand like if somehow he had discovered that that was actually his biological daughter, or if he had come to think of her as his daughter. It wasn't clearly explained, and I think maybe this ties in with what you were saying earlier about how just some extent the giver 
Jeff the Jeff Bridges character is not as fully realized and developed as he could have been. And my guess is is that he probably was realized in the book. But, sure, yeah. I, I got the impression that that was better explained in the book. Speaking of the giver, I think the other one of the other issues that I had with him is that the, the, the society uh, placed a high value on the receiver of memory. Uh, he um, he was very important to them for some reason, but that reason is not clearly explained. The, you know, the, the the receiver of memory, Jeff Bridges, does say, "Well, uh, it is my job as the carrier of these memories to know what came before, to advise the elders, and to tell them what we must avoid." And and I have these things so that we don't repeat the mistakes of the past, because that would be the big fatal flaw, right? Is that eventually, you know, if you don't if you don't learn from the past, you're doomed to repeat it. And so that the idea is that he is there to give advice. But in, at no time did they show any scenes where he was giving Sage advice or where they were listening to that advice, or they just didn't flush that out at all. Uh, we did not see the receiver of memory acting in the capacity with which he was supposed to have ever acted. And so the society places this great value on him, but they throw it all away at a moment's notice when it's, it, it appears that it's not working the way or the way they want it to. Mm, right. Yeah. So, um, and I, I really just have uh, one one more dislike, and that is that the the baby Gabe he should have died several times. He should have drowned. He should have frozen. He should have overheated. He should, there's no way. That there's no way. Sci-fi baby, y'all. He's got <laughs> inferior superior genes. I guess I- inferior for them, but superior to us for sure. Yeah. What what else you got? That's that's it for me. Well, in general, there there was um there's kind of like two separate issues with the memories and how they, they solved everything at the end of the story. There was the, the problem of Jonas's solution should not have worked. He came up with an idea, his first idea, his only idea, and had it not worked, it would have been really devastating because he would most certainly have died and the baby along with him. And he would have looked like a complete idiot. You know, like it was blind faith and it was bad faith that he took at the end of the film. And he just got lucky. He did. That, he it, got that it actually worked. Yeah. Now, grant you, the film is saying, but you know, Jonas was right, and that that's like another separate issue that the the story in and of itself accepts this notion. And you know, we already kind of touched upon that 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 we didn't buy into how the memory trick worked and how it released and reset the entire community. Yeah, I mean, he was right, and and uh, his heart was in the right place, but he acted stupidly at the end of the film. Like, the, okay. There's a higher chance that you will get to the the shield uh, or or the 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 edge of memory or whatever they called it in time so that the baby like you can get there faster without the baby and there's a high likelihood that the baby will not be killed because you will get there in time and you won't put these other people in peril and everything is just it just doesn't make any sense to take the baby with you it, what 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 is your end plan what is your game plan here it doesn't make any sense well, that's the thing. It was like he he actually thought that he would happen across outsiders that would be able to help them should he actually be in dire need. And it was suggested by what happens at the very, very end of the film that he actually does get help. Yeah. But then there's a lot of like uh, potential, uh, I don't want to say analogy, but like metaphor, symbology going on here. And one way you can interpret the events of the film is that Jonas actually died. And that the baby died with him, and this is some sort of like um, illustrated version of the afterlife. <laughs> but it, it, I, but I it's not. I yeah, I don't buy that one. 
Yeah, I don't buy that one either, but it, it's kind of what it could have uh, it could have been had then just like one or two very minor details had been altered. Yeah. Um, uh, that's really all my complaints, honestly. Uh, we've touched upon like the black and white thing, and that's not a problem for me. No, Meryl Streep it. is my biggest complaint because her role is very significant, and it seems like the film never gave her a great moment. Yeah. And then... Next to that, there is how does the memory problem work and how on earth did you think that that was a good idea, how it was resolved at the end of the film? And lastly, Jonas' idea was bad and he got away with it. It worked anyway. And supposedly that means Jonas was quite the hero and we should you know, admire Jonas for his brilliance. But really, he wasn't brilliant. He was just incredibly lucky. He was, yeah. Um, and that being said... I still enjoyed this film. It was... You want to get into your uh, your final thoughts and ratings? Yeah. Next to Equilibrium, this is my favorite dystopian story. Mm. And I I really mean that. That's... uh, I'm just being very honest. Um, What do I say? Let me see here. Let me get out my cards. Your cue cards? Yes. We'll get you a teleprompter. Okay. I give The Giver four stars out of five... Um, because the director did a pretty faithful job to the novel. Um, I am literally reading this. A story that resonates <laughs> with a wide audience, and that I believe as well. It has influenced dystopian fiction at large, and I can see why. And what's uh, go, uh, that was another thing I wanted to note upon, is that this film is only coming out now, so it feels like it's copying other material. But films like Equilibrium came out after the novel was written. So... It's uh, it's confusing, but if you if you can like take yourself out of the moment in 2014 and put yourself back in 1993, this material is far more creative and imaginative than than it, it appears to be in 2014. And so I'm going to give it the credit there that the film is just trying to be faithful to the book, and it seems to have done a good job of translation, even if they've updated all the ages of the main kids as to introduce a, a slight love interest. For what it's worth, that was a subplot that I thought was effective in the film, and I was okay it was. with. It was. And, and I meant to touch on this, and I forgot. Um, one thing that I did like about this film, even though it's a young adult novel, and it does have a little bit of that, uh, you know, the the teenage love going on there, that wasn't, like, overbearing, and there was no love triangles like you see in a lot of other young adult novels, and it just, they didn't feel the need to complicate it. It was just there, and it was just a little bit, and he had feelings for this girl, as you would expect, as, he's, as the receiver of memories is learning about emotions for the first time, and he's this 18-year-old kid who knows this other 18-year-old girl who he's been friends with for a long time. You would expect there to be uh, stirrings of feelings. Well, they call them stirrings in, in, the, in the movie, actually. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I, I really appreciated that. Um, yeah, it, and this is something I've said before, and I'll say it again. It, I really appreciate it when characters in a movie or a novel are better than your average young person today. Because oh, yeah. it seems like, as a whole, the world does not expect very much of young people. And I think that that's a big I know, mistake. right? I mean, I know. I think the, the world... <laughs> expects young people to be like Hannah Montana kids. And that's, that's really sad because I don't want to live in that world. (laughs) Party in the USA, man. (sighs) So, okay. Back to my bottom line. While you might say that the movie is a watered down version of equilibrium, it communicates 
why social utopia wouldn't work because from the riches of good culture and the, a healthy use of human emotion come the important humanity and civilization building as we know them in the real world. This film is faithful to the real world in the message, and that's it's powerful in that. And for that, I give the the, the giver uh, four out of five stars. Okay, it's successful in edifying the audience. I enjoyed this film a lot, um, as I enjoyed uh, Divergent, um, and uh, not as much as I enjoyed uh, either of the Hunger Games films. Um, and I haven't read the book yet, so I can't really rate it based on the, uh, you know, how true it was to the book or whether I like the book or not, as I can with, um, for instance, uh, The Hunger Games. Uh, I did like this film a lot, though. I really enjoyed it. I was enthralled by it. Um, I became, you know, hooked very early in the film, and there was no way I was going to be leaving that film, um, even if there was a fire or a flood or something like that in the building that would not have that would not have gotten me out of there. I, I no, I'm, I'm serious. I I really did enjoy the film. Um, and for all the reasons that I touched on, uh, you know, especially some of the themes, the way it makes you think and, and you know, the questions it raises. Um, and uh, in general, I think uh, especially knowing that this book came before a lot of these young adult trends that we see now and informed them, despite the fact that so many critics think that this came later and, you know, it's just following in the footsteps. It actually the, the source material informed where we've been. And for all these reasons, I give the film three and a half out of five stars. Um, it's not quite a four star film. I did not enjoy it as much as catching fire. And I'm really, really, really looking forward to the rest of the hunger games films. But that said, this is well worth your time to view. Uh, and it is a fantastic film that I, I will certainly view again sometime in, in the future. So, uh, for what it's worth, I read divergent three and a half stars as well. And I feel like they're, yeah, they're, I may like this one slightly better than divergent. Um, but it's, it's really, it's not, neither of them are up to the four star mark. So, you know, maybe maybe this should be three and three quarter stars. I don't know. So hmm. there you go. For what it's worth, uh, the IMDb rating is hovering around seven point one, as it as it often does, and the Rotten Tomatoes rating, as we mentioned, thirty two percent from the critics and sixty seven percent from the audience. And that's it. That's our review of uh, the Giver. We're well worth our time. I thought. Yes, sir. Thank you for uh, letting us bring that one up. I, yeah, I and, and I, I appreciate you. Um, you're the one that kind of brought it to attention. I really wasn't that aware of this film uh, for whatever reason, and uh, you, you're the one that said you wanted to view it. I really n- didn't know much about it, and, and I didn't watch a trailer before I went and saw it or anything, and uh, it's a failure, I think, of the marketing because it's not like I don't pay attention to these things, and it was just not that – I've not seen a trailer for it before any movies, um, and I see a lot of movies, Joe, uh, so I um, – I just had to wonder what happened there. The, you know, the failure of the marketing. Yeah, considering the failure of the marketing, it did all thing uh, all things considered very well. Like um it, we know how much marketing really depend uh, you know makes a film successful these oh, days. Oh yeah, for sure. And uh even so, it it did more than pay the bills. So yeah. again, I'm kind of hopeful that if there is more material to cover and they can expand upon this one that there it would deserve a sequel. Well, um, for a budget like he, of for a yeah. budget of twenty five million and at thirty six point two million worldwide, we are nowhere near sequel ter- territory yet. So if if people want a sequel, they're going to have to get out and see this film. I don't know. Yeah, I I just don't know. Mm. Yeah. 
All right, well, next week we're going to be talking about The November Man, because uh, despite the fact that I feel like we're going to be completely disappointed, I do want to see Pierce Brosnan back in action. And uh, so, yeah, we're going to talk about (laughs) November Man and uh, prepare to be disappointed. Um, So that's what we'll be talking about next week. In the meantime, Joe, people, uh, after hearing your your, uh, wonderful words and lovely review and glowing review of this film, they'll probably want to find out where to find more of your work on the Internet. Where can they do that? Where Where can they stalk you? Oh dear. <laughs> well, um, I better direct you to some uh, some of the other Joes on Twitter for that. Um, go to Joseph Darnell on Twitter. Yeah, that's that's the one. Mm. No, I I am underscore Joe Darnell on Twitter. And if you want to read my writings, I, I uh, have some stuff on Movie Bite every now and then. Tomorrow, I am publishing my written review of The Giver and. On my own site, joedonnell.com, I write about technology, the arts, creative design, and uh, technology, and uh, other geek interests. All right, and if you want to keep up with me uh, and find out all of my pithy little things that I say throughout the week and throughout the day, you can follow me on Twitter as well, at TJDraperPro is who I am there. Um, you can also keep up with my writing on MovieByte at MovieByte, M-O-V-I-E-B-Y-T-E dot com. Uh, if you got the show via podcast feed and uh, you know you download it via Apple's podcast app or iTunes or something like that, and uh, you want to find out about these show notes that we mention occasionally, you can go to moviebyte.com. Again, that's M-O-V-I-E-B-Y-T-E dot com slash podcast slash 104, because this is the 104th episode. And on that page, you will locate the show notes and the links for all the things that we talked about. Uh, and you can follow along with us and click on the links and read the stories and uh, keep up with all the news. That's where you can do that at. Uh, so next week we'll be reviewing the, mem- the November Man, and uh, I'm looking forward to seeing Pierce Brosnan in action. And we will talk to you guys next week. Thanks for giving us a listen. Thanks for being with us, and uh, keep enjoying the movies. We'll talk to you later, Joe. Good night. Good night.